Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. So, hey there, and welcome to Walk Through the Bible. This is week 20, and we're going to be covering today pages 603 to 639 in the Daily Bible, or what are the dates of April 14th through the 20th in the Daily Bible. So, we have uh, just finished last week reading about uh, Solomon is now king, and he has built the temple. And this week, we reach the pinnacle, the absolute heights of the history of Israel, of the history of King David and King Solomon, Israel's two greatest kings out of all history. And so I want you to enjoy this week. Enjoy the heights of the mountaintop that we're going to talk about, because I hate to tell you, it doesn't last forever. But this week we read the temple has been built, and so it's now time for Solomon to move the Ark of the Covenant into place and put it into the Holy of Holies in the temple and to have a dedication uh, to the Lord to dedicate this new temple. So I just want to make a quick note here. David had brought the Ark of the Covenant up, and it said that he put it in a tent. It doesn't tell us exactly where the Ark was, and many people assume that it was on the Temple Mount because that was the threshing floor of Aruna that David purchased, and he had built an altar there. He had made sacrifice, and he had stopped the plague on Jerusalem. So it only made sense that he would, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant, that he would put it there and that they would continue to have sacrifice there in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And um, perhaps the tent was not the original tabernacle, but that all makes sense. But the Bible doesn't actually tell us that that's exactly where it was. And I do want to point out that in the time of David, the threshing floor of Aruna was outside the city walls. So I'm not sure how secure it was to put the Ark of the Covenant there. We do know from this passage that we are reading this week that it says Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant up from the city of David. So either he moved it there in order to build the temple or it was already there in the city of David, which would have been inside those original city walls. Um, you know, a note about the threshing floor of Aruna uh, up on the hilltop, which actually was a little bit higher than the city of David. And of course, a threshing floor would be up on top of a hill so that the wind would be able to blow through there. And as they were, they'd toss the wheat up into the air and the wind would blow the chaff away or the chaff away and the seeds would fall down. And that's how they separated the chaff from the wheat. Um, you know, living in Jerusalem, I'll tell you one of the things that I learned was that every afternoon there was this breeze that would pick up blowing from west to east 
And um, like clockwork. And why is that? Well, we were told that it was because way over in the east in Arabia, which is all desert, that the heat was building up. And as it got hotter and hotter in the desert in the daytime, the heat would rise. And as the air was rising over the Arabian desert, it would suck the cooler wind off of the Mediterranean towards it. And so that cooler air off the Mediterranean would go right through Israel, right through Jerusalem, and on across Jordan into Arabia. So I can just picture this threshing floor there. They had a pretty good regular wind up there uh, when they needed it. So um, all that to say that that area was um, outside of the city wall. And um, so we don't know that that's where David's tabernacle was, but we do know it's where Solomon built the temple. Now, when Solomon moves the Ark of the Covenant to the temple, places it in the Holy of Holies, the scripture tells us very specifically that all that was in the Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets of the law from Mount Sinai. So if you remember from your previous reading, the, uh, the, a jar of manna had been placed in the ark and the rod of Aaron that budded, uh, indicating God's choice of the family of Aaron as the priest. Uh, it had been placed in the ark of the covenant. And uh, those two items are no longer in the picture. Of course, it had been over 400 years. So 400 years is a long time. Things get moved around, uh, they get misplaced or damaged or destroyed or whatever. So Solomon begins to do burnt offerings here now at the dedication of the temple. And uh, it says that he started round the clock praise and worship, just as King David had done, and that he did everything exactly as King David had prescribed. And, um, and so Second uh, Chronicles 6.1 also gives us another little footnote before we get into our uh, dedication of the temple. The little footnote it gives us is the timing that this dedication of the temple, that the temple was built 480 years after the Exodus. So if that is an a, a accurate verse of scripture, and it really does mean 480 years, then that means the Exodus took place around 1450 BC. And so in all of our previous episodes in the first quarter, if you were with us, we kept talking about the reason the archaeologists don't have um, findings that substantiate the Israelites in Egypt at that time, the Exodus, they're conquering uh, the land of Canaan, is because they're looking at the wrong time period. The Bible is very specific here that the Exodus was around 1450, and most of those archaeologists have been looking 200 years later. So just a note there, some people say maybe the number 480 wasn't meant to be a specific number. Maybe it's just um, a rounded off number or it's to signify something else like a number of generations. Um, but it says 480 years and I think it kind of lines up with uh, the, the timing of the Exodus. 
So now let's talk about the dedication of the temple because this is an absolutely amazing moment. And for me, this is like right there at the pinnacle of the whole story that we have been reading up to this point. And this is Solomon's speech upon the completion of the work. And um, I'm not going to read you it's the whole all the scriptures, but just a few. So here from Second Chronicles 6, verses 4 through 6, then uh, Solomon said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there, nor have I chosen anyone to be ruler over my people Israel. But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there, and I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. This is an absolutely key verse where God is saying here, I have chosen Jerusalem, and I put my name there, and I've chosen David to rule over my people. So now um, the dedicatory prayer uh, takes off from here, and it's a long prayer, so I'm only going to read a few of the verses from it, but beginning with Second Chronicles 6, verses 14 through 15, Solomon says here, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. So Solomon is celebrating the fulfillment of God's promises to David that his son would build the temple and that he would establish for David an everlasting throne there in Jerusalem. But there's a very special uh, phrase here that we read in verse 14 where Solomon refers to God's covenant of love with his servants. You know, twice in Deuteronomy, the covenant that God cut with his people in, in Sinai, you know how I liken it to a marriage. It is referred to as a covenant of love. This was totally a unique situation of that day in, in the world, in the Middle East, that a God would have a covenant of love with his people. Only the God of Israel had that with his people, the children of Israel. Now, moving on to verse 18. But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest of heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. So Solomon is very clear here. He's not building like a house that God's going to dwell in as though God could even fit into the temple. He is extolling here that God is greater than all the heavens or the earth. So how could he dwell in this house? But then he continues on. Nevertheless, it's may your eyes be open toward this temple 
day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So he's asking God, even though I know you are greater than this building, you dwell in heaven. I'm asking you that when we pray towards this place, that you hear us from heaven and you forgive your people. Then Solomon begins to pray that God would hear and that he would judge in different situations. And first in judging disputes between people. And uh, when Israel suffers defeat because they've sinned against God, that he would hear their prayers from this place and forgive them. Or in times of drought, uh, when they pray towards this place, or in famine or in plagues. But then in verse 32, we have a section here I want to take a minute. And this is when he prays for you and for me. He prays for the strangers and the foreigner that may go there and pray. He said here in verse 32, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. What a beautiful prayer. And it, in, it just shows that God's intention all along, and Solomon understood this, that God had this special arrangement with Israel for the sake of the nations, that God wanted to demonstrate to the nations what it meant to live as his people and that anybody could be included in this. So Solomon knows this, and therefore he prays for the foreigners that when they come there because of God's great name to pray towards him, God, will you hear them? But he uses a very, very interesting uh, motif here in his praying. And he says that when they come here because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. So he's using the descriptive words here of God's deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And that when he brought them out and we had the great exodus, it was because of his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And here Solomon's using that very description. And you and I have most definitely been freed from the bondage of sin through God's mighty right hand and his outstretched arm as was exhibited on the cross through Jesus. This describes beautifully, we have been set free. And therefore, because we know that his name is there in Jerusalem, we may come there to pray at this temple. 
and he's saying, God, hear their prayers. You know, the prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah, we're going to get into this in future weeks. They envisioned this. They envisioned the nations coming up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And the very name of this podcast, the Out of Zion podcast, and the very scenery that you're seeing if you're watching this on YouTube is because through Isaiah, God promised that the law would go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When the nations will come up to Jerusalem, they'll be taught his ways through the word and through the law. Here, Solomon prays it. So then it says, going on in 2 Chronicles 7, And when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. Wow! Don't you wish you were there? How I wish I had been there and had seen the fire of God fall from heaven on the sacrifice and the glory of God come down and seen it above the temple. And of course, the priests that were inside the temple saw it inside the temple. But the Israelites that were not priests saw it outside above the temple. How I wish I could have experienced that amazing moment. So then uh, the Lord responds to Solomon, and it says that he doesn't do it on the spot, though. He waits, and he speaks to Solomon uh, in a dream at night. And the Lord appeared to him and said, and this is in verse uh, 12, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, that is a very familiar verse. We quote it all the time in our prayers for our own nation, for America, for many nations where we live. We pray that God would do that and would heal our nation. But we need to always remember this was spoken about the people of Israel in response to Solomon's prayer that in the times of droughts, and in the times of famines and plagues. And God here responds and he says, okay, when I shut the heavens so that there is no rain or there's plague and my people come before me in repentance, I will forgive. 
I will heal their land. And yes, there's a spiritual principle here. And I believe that we as believers can take from this this principle, the principle of repentance and God bringing healing and restoration. But always remember, these words were spoken about the people of Israel. And continuing on in verse 15, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk with me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and my laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. So God has made an amazing promise here to David that even his son, his successor, will have this everlasting throne if he walks in obedience to the Lord. And then here in verse 19, the Lord says, But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them up out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all of this disaster on them. So my friend, remember here, God made this amazing promise to David and to his son Solomon. But he's very clear here, the judgment that will come if Solomon does not obey him and turns to other gods. We're going to find next week um, how that this judgment uh, is comes about. But in the meantime, I want us to enjoy this week. Let's enjoy the mountaintop that we are on. This is the highlight of Israel's history, so let's enjoy it. We'll worry about the judgment next week. This week, we're looking from the mountain and we're seeing that the kingdom of David, which is now the kingdom of Solomon, is the biggest. It is the most wealthy and its king is at a place of such prestige. And he's so full of wisdom that the nations are drawn to him. So we read about this now uh, the story goes on. Solomon has finished building the temple. He has dedicated the temple, and he also builds himself a palace. Now, the palace is many times larger than the temple, so it does take almost twice as long to build as the temple, but it is also built with the help of Hiram of Tyre and the Phoenicians, 
and it is full of cedar wood, cedar wood from Lebanon. And in 1 Kings 7, it actually says that Solomon's palace, in the roof, there were 45 cedar beams that rested on columns. I want you to remember this. I'm going to come back to it later today at the end of today's teaching about the cedar beams from Lebanon. But let's continue our story. The palace also has a, a throne room, a hall of justice that is all cedar. And his palace is called the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon. It is so full of cedar wood. Now you cannot get cedar wood in the land of Israel. It only comes from Lebanon. And it was brought down by uh, Hiram of Tyre. So uh, now Solomon also built cities. And it tells us that he built the cities specifically, several of them, but Hatsor, he built them up, restored them, built them up. Hatsor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And archaeology proves that during the time of Solomon, these three cities were built using identical types of construction. So it really does back up that it was built at the same time by the same king for sort of the same purposes. Well, what is the purpose? Why am I mentioning these three cities? We haven't talked about this before, so I want to bring it up now. Why did God, why do you think God chose the land of Canaan? Why this piece of land that he gave to Abraham. I, re I talked about this back in the Abrahamic covenant a little bit, but I didn't, I didn't elaborate on just how strategic this property was, that it's on this land bridge in between three continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. And so we see how that because it's in this place, there are two trade routes that go right through uh, the territory here that God gave to the tribes of Israel. One is called the International Trade Highway, and it runs from Egypt up along the coast. And then when it gets up to what we call the Valley of Jezreel, which is where Megiddo is, it turns and it goes inland to the Sea of uh, Galilee, and then up into what is today Syria and Iraq, which then was um, Assyria or Babylon or Persia, depending on what time of history. It's a very, very significant trade highway. There was another one a little bit farther inland that today would go through the country of Jordan on the mountain range there. Well, some of the tribes of Israel took those mountain ranges, and that was called the King's Highway. So these two highways had tremendous amounts of trade on them, and Solomon builds up three cities on the International Trade Highway for what? To collect taxes or tribute, whatever you want to call it, on those doing the trade. They are going to benefit from the use of this trade highway going through his territory. So he's going to collect some kind of tax, some kind of revenue from them. So Solomon becomes very wealthy because of two things. And one is the location of his kingdom in the midst of all of this international trade. 
Secondly, he gets very wealthy because of the size of his kingdom. And so in our reading this week, we read how that his kingdom stretched all the way from the river Euphrates down to the river of Egypt. That's very, very big. That would take in all of Assyria or Babylon, today what is Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, Israel, parts of Lebanon. Um, it would go all the way down into Egypt. And we don't really think that Solomon ruled all those areas, but what it means is there were different levels of control. And so the heart of it, Solomon absolutely controlled. It was his country, his territory. But then he had some countries bordering him that were uh, what we would call vassal states. So he didn't actually occupy them and take them over, but they paid tributary to King Solomon as vassals. And then beyond them, probably like Egypt in the south and Tyre up in the north, they were allies of Solomon. So they lived in peace with Solomon. And so therefore it could be said that his kingdom, that his, his rule um, extended beyond what would actually be considered the walls, say, of his in his immediate uh, kingdom. So now um, there's an amazing verse I want to read for you in 1 Kings 4. I'm going to read verses 20 to 21 and verse 25. So here under Solomon, as I said, this is the view. This scripture here is the view from the mountaintop where we see the height of the history of Israel. It says, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the borders of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Wow, we've reached the pinnacle of the mountain. This is it. The people are at peace. They are numerous. They're expanding. They're prosperous. They're enjoying their own vine and fig tree, which is a little uh, idiom for meaning they were prosperous and peaceful. You could say it was almost an idiom of heaven. Um, that's how good it was. That's how good life was. And of course, also, Solomon was given great wisdom beyond his natural ability. And in 2 Chronicles 9, 22 to 23, it says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. All the kings of the earth sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. You know, it said that Solomon had spoken 3,000 proverbs and over a thousand songs. And here we're reading that kings of the earth, from, it says all the kings of the earth, came to him to hear 
his wisdom. I believe, my friends, this is why God placed the children of Israel along the king's highway, because he wanted the world going to and fro to see his people serving him, living at peace. They're prosperous, they're strong, and they have a king who is the most wisest of the whole earth. This is what he wanted. He wanted Israel to be a light to the nations. And here they are. They are being a light to the nations. And then we have a special story of the Queen of Sheba who comes to visit. And I wish we had more time to talk about this story. Um, I think that we might try to do something separate on it. But the, the Queen of Sheba, some say that she came from what is today Yemen. It was southern Arabia. That's where the Sabaeans were. But some of the Sabaeans were also across the water in Africa. And so the Ethiopians have a very long tradition that the Queen of Sheba was from their people and their area. And it is very, very likely. Um, and that she went to Solomon and she learned from him and she saw his wealth. Um, and there is a tradition, it's not from the Bible, but a tradition that she and Solomon had a child. And she brings this child back and that from this child is the beginning of the Ethiopian Jewish community. Um, we don't know that that's really what happened, but there are a couple other theories of to explain the roots of the Jews of Ethiopia. One is that maybe when the Israelites were in Egypt, that uh, in, during the Exodus time with Moses, some of them may have actually gone south and ended up there. Um, but the more accepted tradition is that it was during the time of the first exile that the tribe of Dan fled south to get away from the Assyrians and that they began uh, the community of Jews in Ethiopia. Whatever um, story may be the, the true one, it is for sure that there were centuries of Jews in Ethiopia. They were black skinned. They lived in Ethiopia for 2,000, 2,500 years. Um, if the tribe of Dan went there, it was during the fall of the first temple, Solomon's temple. And therefore, that explains perfectly why the Jews of Ethiopia, who had their own language, who were sort of cut off from the world, uh, observed Judaism based on its practices at the time of the first temple. Now, 2,500 years later, when the Ethiopian Jews then finally make their way back to Jerusalem. They knew they originated from Jerusalem. They always held the desire to go back to Jerusalem. Now, because of the existence of the state of Israel, they were allowed to come back. And we have an amazing saga of the return of the Ethiopian Jews to Israel. They came into confrontation there with rabbinic Judaism, the developments in the law and the traditions and the teaching of the rabbis that had taken place for 2,500 years. 
And so there was a little bit of a clash, not just of cultures, but even of the observance of the Jewish religion. And we as an organization in Israel have had the privilege of helping bring home the Ethiopian Jews, and we still are today, and of also helping them become integrated into Israeli society because it's been a very, very uh, hard road for them. And if you would like more information on this and how to maybe even support this uh, project of helping bring home the Ethiopian Jews, um, and help integrate them in Israel. We put a link in today's show notes how that you can make a donation towards this. But the Queen of Sheba in this week's reading um, is a very, very important part uh, of this story. And so I wanted to bring it out now. As we close today, then we know that uh, we had a large section of the Proverbs that we're reading through this week. Um, yes, Solomon wrote, it said that he recited 3,000 Proverbs. A lot of these Proverbs are written by Solomon, but some of them are written by other people. But this is the book that really gives us key to uh, living life. And um, we'll talk more about it next week after you've read through some of them. Um, I want to tell you about two resources now, and I want to come back to those cedar beams. Okay, so stay with me. Um, we have a resource that we're not selling or uh, it's not a purchase, but it's a video that we link to in the show notes that you can click on and watch it. It's a YouTube video of a couple. I don't know them, um, but they do videos of sites in Israel. And they've got a number of them that are interesting, but I watched their little video on the Temple Mount and they go up and they're able to film it with their cell phone and they show you exactly what it's like visiting the Temple Mount. They show you the restrictions, they show you the tensions, uh, but then in their video, they show you some historical footage of the Temple Mount, things that have been found there. They explain it. It's really a great and short little video. I encourage you to watch it. But they show you how that back in the early 1900s, there was an earthquake and it destroyed the roof of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the Temple Mount. Today, there are two Muslim shrines there. One is a shrine called the Dome of the Rock. The other is a mosque, a place where they go in to pray. And the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, which has been there for hundreds of years, the, it was destroyed in this earthquake and the roof fell in. And they show video footage that the British took back when the Al-Aqsa Mosque was being rebuilt and they showed all of these ancient cedar beams that were holding up the roof of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which I assume are still in place, and they're holding up the new roof. Yes, would these be cedar beams from Solomon's temple? And the answer is absolutely yes. That's where the cedar came from. They are that old. And I have a picture, which I've also uh, linked to in today's show notes. This picture is of a door, one of the entrances to the Temple Mount. As we were leaving, our tour guide pointed to one of the doors and they said, that is made out of ancient cedar. 
that was found here on the Temple Mount. And so I also show you a picture of that. This is proof, my friends, that the Bible is right and that Hiram of Tyre brought cedar from Lebanon and built the first temple and he built Solomon's palace and helped build David's palace. So there was plenty of cedar wood around uh, that has been reused over the years. So isn't that exciting? I hope you enjoy that little video. Uh, please consider making a donation towards the Ethiopian Jews and their return to their homeland. We've got all that in our show notes. Enjoy reading the Proverbs this week, and I'll see you back here next week as we talk about the wisdom of Solomon. See you then. Until then, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.